Welcome back to Money and Meaning, stories of unlocking the potential of global markets for impact. I'm your host, Alex Kravitz. This episode features Sasha Dichter, the co-founder of 60 Decibels, a social impact measurement company working to make it as easy as possible for social entrepreneurs and investors to listen to end customers or beneficiaries. They're trying to solve several lingering challenges around impact measurement and management, primarily the fact that, that too often the only data that social entrepreneurs have are outputs, such as the number of customers served, and they have to use this as a proxy for the much more valuable data about outcomes and impact. To solve this challenge, 60 decibels goes right to the beneficiaries themselves, returning high-quality end-user data that allows organizations to make better informed decisions for growing their businesses and maximizing impact. Previously, Sasha served as the Chief Innovation Officer for Acumen, where he led the organization's impact measurement practice and launched the Lean Data Initiative that eventually spun out to become 60 decibels. Let's jump into the conversation. Sasha, welcome to Money and Meaning. Great. Thanks, Alex. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Doing as well as one can be doing in these crazy times. <laughs> the... Um... The tagline for our show is, is stories of unlocking the potential of global markets for impact, a theme that, that ties in really well with the work that you do at, at 60 Decibels, which we'll, we'll get into shortly. But before we do so, can you tell me about how, you know, when you first realized the, the potential of capital markets to solve social or environmental challenges? Sure. I have to go back a ways, if that's all right. Please. Um, so I, uh, I came from a pretty progressive household and uh, was an idealistic student who was studying leftist movements and democratization in Brazil. That was my passion for mm-hmm. whatever reason. <laughs> and uh, it turns out my mother, so my mother's Brazilian and I had been going uh, to and from Brazil as a kid uh, pretty often. I grew up in New York City. And obviously, um, you know, Brazil is a country known for its contrast and for its inequality. And I think you can't help but be struck by the differences between rich and poor and also the proximity of poverty and wealth. Uh, there. And so it was fascinating for me as I had studied specifically leftism uh, and kind of populist movements in Brazil, done my undergraduate thesis about that, about the Brazilian Workers' Party. But specifically, one of the things that I remembered uh, growing up and going to Brazil is that you couldn't get a telephone. There was a, an official price for a telephone. And if you wanted to get one, you had to be in a wait list. And I can't remember if it was five years or 10 years. But it was also sort of known that there was a black market for phone lines. Uh, and obviously this is fixed phone lines at the time. And for something like $3,000, you could get a black market line tomorrow. And then my first job out of college, like all young idealistic people, was to go be a management consultant. Uh, that's <laughs> definitely how you solve the world's problems. Uh, but I was actually lucky enough to do a bunch of really interesting work. And in my second year there, I got I was in the wireless group at Booz Allen Hamilton. I was focusing mostly on projects in Latin America. And so it turned out that then this big project that I got to work on was around the privatization of the cellular phone system all across Brazil. So we were actually working for the providers in, I think, 26 of the 27 states of Brazil. And I spent about a year doing this work for various companies. And from literally in a 12-month period of time, that entire disparity around access to phones literally went away as the entire phone system that had been nationally owned was privatized. Literally billions of dollars investment capital came in and prices dropped for everybody. 
and quality improved after sales support. I mean, basically everything improved. And obviously cellular infrastructure is the underpinning of so much economic activity. And particularly in a country where there'd been such restricted access, literally tens of millions of people all of a sudden had access to uh, communications technology. And I was, I was literally in the th- eye of that storm for 12 months, watching the before, watching the after, and watching the speed with which that change occurred. And having spent all this time in Brazil talking about you know, populism and leftism and, and all of a sudden you know, this massive privatization created a massive objective increase in well-being. And it really got me thinking about you know, what premises I had brought in, what the markets had done in that particular situation. Obviously, it's a very specific situation. Um, but really got me searching down a path, and this was, you know, at the time in the late 90s, to think about how I could rethink the role of markets as a lever for social change. And it kind of set me down my path. That's great, yeah. So did that contribute to your wanting to work at, at Acumen, which is a, maybe maybe you can explain better than I do, but it invests in private companies in, in developing markets? Yeah, I mean, you know, I've always felt that our, careers make sense in retrospect. So I never Mm -hmm. had, you know, this very linear plan. Um, I definitely felt like I was looking for some sort of intersectional job. I had actually, you know, before that first job, I had done some internships in the public sector and I found kind of the pace, you know, I work in Capitol Hill. I found the pace of work and kind of the pace of change to be frustrating. And I felt like there was sort of an urgency in more private companies. Um, But you know, this isn't that long ago. Uh, it's you know a little more than 20 years ago. There weren't a lot of organizations like there are today that kind of inhabit this in-between space. And so what I had ended up doing was spending time looking at large companies and spent about five years doing corporate citizenship work. So basically the public-oriented face of, you know, big fortune uh, 50 companies. I worked at IBM and GE Capital. Um, and in my time at GE, I got to know Acumen and it just felt like this embodiment. I was like, oh, that's it. Like, that's the thing I'm trying to see if it works. You know, and what Acumen at the time was known for, and it's expanded its footprint a lot, was, again, making private investment to fight poverty. And it just felt like that was exactly this embodiment that I had been looking for. And if there was a way to, again, unleash the power of markets to serve low-income customers, that seemed really, really powerful. So it, it did lead me there, but not because like I, I even knew Acumen existed at the beginning. Um, but I think there were a bunch of us at that time who were searching and, and coalesced around a few organizations, and obviously all of that's really blossomed. Right. Tell me about the work that, that you do now at 60 Decibels. Sure. So we are a social impact measurement company, technology-enabled, that grew out of Acumen. We actually built the work that we do, um, which we call Lean Data, as part of Acumen. And essentially what we're trying to do is make it really easy to listen to end customers and beneficiaries. Our view is that if you're trying to make change with and for people, their voice has to be front and center to everything that you do. And one of the strange things is in a sector that calls itself you know, social impact work or social impact investing, uh, we seem to be kind of in a cul-de-sac with respect to making impact measurement be essential to what we do for a whole bunch of reasons. And our feeling was that it needed to be easier, faster, more dynamic, and more value-add to everybody involved to understand impact. It just doesn't make any sense, right? People are committing literally their entire lives or decades of their lives to trying to make a change in the world. And the act of figuring out whether or not that's happening is an exceptional activity. Like, it just makes no sense whatsoever. Um, So what 60 Decibels does is specifically solve the how problem of social impact measurement. 
we speak directly to end customers anywhere in the world. Um, we built an infrastructure that allows us to talk to them directly in their local language, usually over the phone, with researchers that we have in 35 countries, about 300 of them. Um, and so what it's doing is it's just anywhere you are, we want to bring that customer as close to you as possible. And anywhere we are, you want we want to make it feel like talking to that customer is so easy that you can't but help to do that. But it's not simply making it easy to talk to customers. It's making it easy for you to turn your idea about social impact into really simple, understandable, actionable metrics and numbers that say, am I succeeding? Am I failing in reaching the people I want to reach and creating the change I want to make? So it's really you know, a whole act of kind of simplification of this thing that we've made complex and academic. And I think we frankly scared off a lot of people from uh, making this a part of their day-to-day work. Yeah. You, you mentioned that it spun out of Acumen originally. What was the challenge that you were trying to solve? You, you mentioned it a little bit, but how did that challenge manifest itself, I guess, in the work that you were doing at Acumen at the time? Yeah. I mean, I think our experience with the challenge of social impact measurement was totally common, um, mm-hmm. sort of what everybody experiences. And so Acumen was founded in 2001. And from day one, core to its mission and core to its ethos was to have a really rigorous standard for social impact measurement, to really bring accountability into deployment of what, you know, sort of the mindset of philanthropy, Acumen's philanthropically funded, even though it makes investments, um, and to make sure that accountability to that end customer is built into everything that it did. And so from day one, Acumen invested really heavily in social impact measurement. I think in its first year, it had a, a star rating system for social impact of all of its companies. Acumen's uh, former chief investment officer, Brian Trelstad, who's now at Bridges and is teaching at uh, Harvard Business School, was one of the people who got around the table to create what eventually became IRIS, the Impact Reporting Investment Standards. In the early days, Acumen also built a software platform for impact measurement. I mean, you name it, like Acumen was trying to solve this problem really in earnest. And so then fast forward to about 2012, and when I took over the impact measurement kind of function within Acumen, and we had been running this quite rigorous system for five or six years. And in fact, my job prior to that had been to head up fundraising for Acumen. So I, you know, I had actually spent five years talking to people about this incredible impact measurement work that we did. And what we decided to do in 2012 was to get under the hood and really ask ourselves the tough questions of how well is this working for us? Because we were putting a tremendous amount of organizational effort. We're asking entrepreneurs to put a lot of effort to one, make sure we we're picking as impactful companies as we could pick by our criteria. And the Acumen criteria had to do with serving low-income customers and improving their lives directly with products and services. And specifically, whether the data we were gathering was helping us understand if the impact was being created. And you know, there's a lot of detail in there, which I'm happy to go into, but the, the fundamental punchline was we were putting a lot of effort into gathering, collecting, and organizing very, very low-quality data. And despite all of our efforts, in essence, what we were doing was getting back the same operational data anybody would get from a company, and then assuming that that operational data, a certain number of people served, meant impact. And I actually think that Acumen was at the time still picking very high impact deals. So it wasn't that there was any mission drift at all, but nothing about the system that we had built was creating a learning environment to help us get smarter about whether or not we, in fact, were creating impact. What it felt to me like was, I think it literally would have been impossible for anybody to try harder than we were (laughs) to do this right. And we really, it just wasn't what we needed it to be. 
And so then the question became, you know, do you try to solve it yourself or do you kind of look out into the world? And we felt like we had been working on it so long that we had to give it a shot. So basically our job was to solve that problem. And, you know, as you can sort of see from the pieces of the story, the core thing that we wanted to get to was two things. One is easy, fast, you know, useful data that worked for a social entrepreneur that added value to the person who's solving the problem, didn't just add value to us at Acumen, and specifically solved this, how do I get high quality data? Not what data should I collect, not how should I organize it, but how do I actually get the data? And so we decided to build it for ourselves to solve our own problem. And then over time, um, other folks started to come to us and, and basically say, yeah, we're in the exact same situation. Could you help? So, for example, like, you know, you, you mentioned low income customers in developing countries. If you were investing in like a fintech startup that was trying to promote financial literacy, you could measure the number of people who used it but you couldn't measure like whether it was actually raising people out of poverty. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, in the language of impact measurement, that's essentially where the sector has been. And in many ways continues to be Um, Mm. outputs, not outcomes and impact. And all that means is I know how many people I'm serving or I know how many widgets I've sold, but I don't know what it means to them. Um, And so, I mean, to your point on even who's being served, I mean, give you a a recent example. So we've been working with uh, Omidyar Network and its many funds for a number of years now. Uh, And Omidyar India recently shared their report around having used us and the data we've gathered for a number of years. And specifically, their entire strategy is reaching the next half billion people in terms of reaching, again, a group of low-income Indians and getting them online for the first time. And so... There's just a level of depth of understanding that we're able to help them gather about, you know, really first and foremost, and what you can't take for granted, are you actually reaching these people? You know, I think that there is this notion that if we are doing impact investing, we're serving a certain segment of society. And I would say, by and large, we overestimate our ability to reach low-income people with market-based solutions. So one is literally, are you serving those people? And then secondly, what is their experience of these products and services? What are they like? What are they not like? And just getting that level of customer knowledge. And and we keep on coming back to this understanding your customer really well, being at the heart of creating impact. And we find that in many ways, that kind of breaks through the barrier of impact measurement being seen as foreign or academic. I don't think there's anybody who runs a good company or anybody who runs a good investment fund who would argue against customer knowledge. But somehow that's been divorced from this entire conversation. So really, in a way, that's what we're really trying to bridge to say in this example for Mediar India, who are these next half billion consumers in India? Why are they not online? What is it going to take to get them online? What are their needs? What are their preferences? And what problems can you solve for them? And that's really at the heart of the questions we're answering for them. And then ultimately, when they start serving them, we can say, is the solution meaningful? Right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and it becomes really intuitive then. Um, and then we can build it up towards, you know, frameworks and, you know, whether it's the impact management project, whether it's Iris Plus, whether it's anything else. But in many ways, it feels like we have started at the top with all the frameworks. And then we get all the way down to the customer. Everyone's so tired and confused by all the frameworks that they're like, oh, I don't know if I have time for that. And whereas we find is like, if you start with the customer and their experience and you're having tangible conversations about how to serve them better, then it can be somebody's job to say, great, how do I ladder this up to a particular framework so I can compare this to what another person's doing? That's an excellent result. But I think mm-hmm. we really flipped the story in many ways, and, and that's why we kind of have gotten stuck. You 
alluded to what I imagine was a fairly significant burden or hurdle to this work, which was the burden that it places on the companies, particularly if you're talking about like a, a startup social enterprise that's already working with low income customers. And, and, you know, I imagine that that's one of the challenges that you've had to, to solve for. Yeah. I mean, I remember once talking to an entrepreneur, a serial entrepreneur, very successful. And I can't remember what specific question that I asked him that he found frustrating. And his, you know, he sort of looked at me as the, you have never been an entrepreneur. Let me explain this to you. Um, Entrepreneurs are living there like scuba divers with their little gauge of oxygen, and that's cash. And that's all they're looking at. And if that number is getting too low, like nothing else matters because you can't breathe. Right. And, you know, now that I am, you know, sort of hopefully in the middle of my career, an entrepreneur for the first time, you know, I think I understand that in a different way. You know, there's just a, a focusing that needs to happen around what is mission critical that will help us move forward on what we're trying to get done here, on our mission, in a way that will help our business, you know, be more stable. And, you know, if you're an early stage company and someone well-intentioned who cares about the things you care about, but with a kind of more of an academic mindset says, hey, I'm the impact measurement person here to do a multi-year study. Like your honest answer to that person is like, that's really great. I'm not sure I'm going to be here in 12 weeks. So please, like, don't distract me. Um, and so, you know, we even, you know, quite consciously made the choice when we started doing this within Acumen that we just said we were the lean data team. We weren't the impact measurement team. And instead of showing up and saying, we're going to figure out, you know, kind of with our clipboards and our, you know, green advisors or whatever, um, if you're doing what you said you would from an impact perspective, we said, you know, can we help you understand your customers better? Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's, that's a different first conversation that sets a relationship up in a different way. Then there are other characteristics, like, again, from, from beginning to end, the work that we do in and out, from the time we make a first phone call, the time we hand someone results will be eight weeks or less. Wow. Um, you know, and if we're working with a fund, they could have 20 companies and we could hit that, you know, we could do all 20 companies in eight weeks, 12 weeks, et cetera. Because that's the speed at which you need information to come back. Um, you know, things that would come back to me, for our business now, 12 months from now, it's like, it might be really useful, but it's not going to be like front and center. And right. so that's the way. And, and again, we're, and we're just also just trying to be unbelievably respectful of people's time because it is really, really challenging to build a, any successful business, let alone a successful business that solves a significant problem for, you know, marginalized customers. And so we just kind of try to be really efficient, try to kind of get out of their way. You know, we often, after we finish our work, you know, we'll get them their first results and there's sort of this, oh, wow, like that's that great. That happened so quickly. Like I talked to you up front and then you went and did it. And I, and I just think that we have to be very, very respectful. There's sort of a, you know, I think an early stage company is like a fire that's trying to light. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, if you give oxygen to a big fire, you make a bigger fire. But if you blow on a small fire, you can just blow it out. You know, and it's yeah. a very constrained environment. Um, and, and you just have to stay close to that and, and show up in a way that makes sense. Can you give an example of a of a company that you've worked with and and the type of data that you collected for them and and how they've used that to inform uh, a strategic business decision? Sure, I'll give you one specific example that I like because it also connects directly to their their impact and their impact mission. Um, so there's a company called Saltry, and it is buying cassava from Nigerian farmers. And just to give you like a perspective on 
you know, providing something critical, their customers said that 90% of them said that they don't have access to a service like what Saltery provides, which is kind of an interesting thing because from the company's perspective, there are other buyers. So there's something about the whole package that Saltery is giving them that makes customers feel like it is unique. But uh, one of the questions, we have what we call a Core Insights survey, which is like 18 total questions, but really on 10 kind of themes that we ask mm-hmm. almost every single survey. And that's really important because then we have standard benchmarks to be able to compare any company anywhere in the world um, that's trying to create social impact. So in this particular case, 40% of the farmers said that they're experiencing challenges with transportation costs in particular, as well as some challenges with payments. You have to remember cassava is basically water, like most root vegetables are. And so it's big and it's really, really bulky. And so what this feedback basically told them was the transportation costs were so heavy for these farmers that even though the entire value proposition was extremely positive, it was basically eating up all the social impact in the form of excess value for the product that the farmers were due to receive. And so the company had some notion that this was an issue. You know, I think if we discover something that they've never heard of, that is kind of a bad situation. But it made it so much clearer and kind of put that lens into focus that they totally reorganized their priorities. Um, The reason the transportation costs were high was they had one mill that everybody needed to come to. And they had this aspiration to build mini mills that were much closer to farmers. And from the moment they got that, that data point back, they reprioritized and rapidly accelerated their plans to build these mini mills to get them closer to customers. And literally by that one step can basically bridge a gap between potential impact and realized impact um, because you're eliminating these transportation costs. And, and it was just this sort of win-win for everybody where it's just like, we're doing everything right and we're not creating the impact. And I think that's the, the other important thing in terms of how this is all supposed to feel. Like if you are delivering something valuable and you are short of the impact you could be delivering, that's not a gotcha moment where you, you know, we showed you, we exposed you. It is you've got like most of the pieces of the puzzle right, but you haven't put them together in the exact right way. And where I think we are most valuable to folks is to say, okay, now if you just pull on this lever, you're going to realize all of this value for your customers. So it's right. really great to see that kind of concrete response. That's great. You're you're helping them decide how to use their remaining oxygen to, <laughs> to exactly. extend your metaphor. Um, <laughs> you mentioned working with investors too. Are you tracking the same data? How, how would that be used differently for an investor versus a, a social enterprise? Yeah, well, I mean, I can give you maybe two examples. Um, you know, one, you're just continuing on the uh, Omidya India example for a, for a second there. But, I, you know, I would say across the board, there's a value in getting a comparative view of asking the same questions to multiple companies in your portfolio. So you can have that internal comparison and check, you know, what does my expectation look like and what does the reality look like for these customers? And so one of the neat things that we saw working with Omidya India is that they were a repeat client. And one of the things that they've highlighted in their report is the net promoter score um, is one of the metrics that we collect pretty regularly. It's a standard metric of customer satisfaction and loyalty. And we actually saw for the six companies in their portfolio that had repeated studies with us, their NPS had gone up from a 28 to a 40 based on the input that they had gotten. I mean, not only from our studies, obviously, but from the work that we've done overall. So this is very direct, like, here are the ways you can get closer to your customers and build satisfaction and loyalty that we that we saw. You know, to give a, a, a little bit of a broader example, you know, earlier this year, we published an energy report that spoke, you know, as the result of work we've done over multiple years of more than 35,000 customer interviews that we completed with 49 off-grid energy companies in 17 countries. And, you know, obviously 
when you have that amount of data, the question is, you know, what do you learn? I mean, it's like having a mega energy portfolio. It's not just our energy, you know, it's not just one company's energy portfolio, one funds. Um, but what we did in that was start to build an impact index. You know, everybody in impact wants a number. Like I want to know if I have 23 impacts or 14. Yeah. And <laughs> we can talk about that a little more because you yeah. can tell like I'm slightly skeptical of that. But I do think that that simplicity is helpful when you think about comparison. And so one of the things that we did in that report is create an impact index that looks at questions that we've asked that align to three, three of the five measures in the impact management project. Mm -hmm. And so we looked at who and contribution and what. For a series of technical reasons, we didn't include how much, which we would like to include in the future, and risk, which would be other can, can you explain just really quickly what, just in case any listeners might not know what the, yeah. the impact management project, uh, is that the operating principles? Yeah, so there's been two major efforts in our space to do like a really important consolidation mm -hmm. uh, around all the thinking that's been going on. And one of them that you just mentioned is the IFC operating principles, which a lot of funds have signed up to, which really is a standard of practice with regards to how you manage uh, and manage and measure impact. Mm -hmm. um, and I think by the last time I checked, at least 80 funds have signed up to that. Um, the impact management project is a consensus that's been built over the past few years with, I mean, I'll get the numbers too low. It's something like 6,000 or more companies and funds and organizations inputting. And the idea is to get to a shared understanding and lens through which we all talk about impact. And one of the things that's embedded in there is to think about five dimensions of impact. Who you're serving, how much impact you're creating, how much do you contribute, contribution, what that impact was, and risk. And they have a great website with lots of details. And it's, it's you know, sort of gets you past that first step. Of like, how do I think about all this? How do other people think about this? And so if you're using the IMP, you will be thinking about this in a way that, you know, literally thousands of other players are thinking about this. And so what we wanted to do was say, okay, we've talked to 35,000 customers on off-grid energy. How do we compare the impact of a solar refrigerator to a solar light to a solar mini grid? And what we did is we took all of that data and compared it across three of these dimensions. And all of this is in a report that maybe we can link to in the show notes. Um, but it actually lets you see, you know, with respect to who is being served, that mini grids are doing the best job at serving the poorest customers. When you look at something like contribution, how much is this actually contributing to the change, the, the actual product or service, something like a refrigerator or a mini grid is, again, the best performing. But if you look at overall, like the what dimension of impact, solar lanterns are the best. So it's, you know, and we, I mean, in the end, we give a number and, you know, so we can say this is the highest impact index, this has the lowest impact index. But, I, you know, I'm not sure that that's really the punchline. I think the more interesting punchline is if you think about, you know, the impact management project, the idea that we would have the sophistication to manage our impact like we manage our financials implies that we understand trade-offs between different things, that we have a nuance and a sophistication that says like, okay, my thesis is not that I have to reach the poorest people first. My thesis is I want something that makes the most transformational change. So I care less about the who and I care the most about the contribution. And so therefore my thesis will go in this direction. And then within mini grids or within appliances, I can actually pinpoint this is an overperforming company. You could have a different mm -hmm. thesis that says, no, 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 I feel like markets are just not reaching the people that they need to reach. And so I want to double down on anything that can profitably serve the lowest income customers. That's a level of specificity 
around a thesis around impact that would be just as evolved as your thesis around what kind of companies do I like and why. And to me, that's what it would mean to start to think about in, impact in an integrated way, informed by data. So again, in, our, in many ways, I feel like our job is if you're a fund uh, or if we're trying to inform a sector as a whole, let's take all of this, you know, literally, I mean, imagine 35,000 people, each of whom we've asked like 40 open and closed-ended questions. Like, it's a ton of data. So mm-hmm. our job is to boil that all back down and say, this is what it's going to mean to you thematically. Uh, and this is what it's going to mean to you in terms of helping you use this data to align to your strategy. To take that to the next level, you mentioned, I think it was 18 standard questions that you ask across yeah. all industries. Could you look at the data and say, education has the most impact on people's lives versus agriculture or or energy, or, or is that is it too hard to compare a cross-sector so, like that? I mean, sort of, <laughs> as I'd say. I mean, you know, my extremely not erudite first thought on that is that different things are different. And what I mean by that is, <laughs> you know, we do, we spent, uh, we spent the better part of 18 months working on exactly that question. And we do have a question which we call our meaningfulness question, which is sort of our version of the net promoter score. Uh, And it's a very simple question that says, you know, this product or service X has had a meaningful impact on my life. Strongly agree, agree, neutral, disagree, strongly disagree. And so we do ask that question as one of our core questions. And I do think that if one vertical or one sector, you know, the the benchmark that we can provide says that, you know, 60% of the people very much agree, strongly agree to that. And a sector two, 15% of the people strongly agree. Like I would venture to say that that in and of itself means something and I, and I would be comfortable kind of rank ordering and saying, out of the gate, this is what people are saying about the meaningfulness of the impact on their lives. So I think that that kind of cross-cutting thing can work, but more often than not, I think the why is going to be much more interesting than this quantitative thing. And the variation within a sector is going to be often as big or bigger than the performance of one individual sector. You know, so we did, we, the, our biggest test of that as we were developing that was actually looking at cook stoves versus solar home systems. And, you know, the performance on the meaningfulness question of the solar home systems was just, I think, 50% higher than the performance for cook stoves. Wow. And so that, you know, that felt like it told us something. But that said, there was one cook stove company that I can't remember what their number was. It was like 96% in the very much. And there are a few solar companies where their number was whatever it was, 30-something percent. So I think it's also about getting underneath that data and finding those those outliers in both directions that can really kind of break the mold and break the trend. But we need that. So, you know, it's almost like that's our point of entry, um, but we would hate the conversation to stop there because, again, all that's telling us is what we're doing today. And our whole purpose is around, you know, comparative results, benchmarks, and then improvement. Benchmarks are crucial because we need to be able to compare. I just think we need to be compared at the right level. Right. Do you work here in the U.S. and, and how does that how do the challenges compare, you know, capturing customer data here versus in developing yeah, countries? Absolutely. Um, I mean, we've been working in the U.S. for the for at least the past four years. It's a growing part of our portfolio. You know, because of the spin out from Acumen, we kind of mimicked Acumen's footprint. And Acumen actually does have uh, a U.S. investment arm, but it's it's newer and relatively less of the overall footprint. In fact, um, you know, connecting back to SoCap, Lindsay Smalling, who was the CEO of SoCap, has joined our team to build our U.S. market. So if anybody's in the U.S. Um, and wants to 
talk about what we're doing and how to apply here. Um, Lindsay is a great person to talk to. I would say that there are some important structural differences, obviously, in the U.S. Um, that make our work exist in a different context. I mean, I think first and foremost, there are themes and lenses through which we look at our work in the U.S. that are just going to be different than other places. You know, a lot of the work in the developing world is literally a, you know, did you not have access to a thing before and now you have access to it and how has that changed your life? There are fewer things for which that is the case in the U.S. In the U.S., a core lens through which we look through everything uh, is racial equity. And we're, you know, we're sort of looking at the themes that bubble up that can be both cross-cutting and relevant kind of across the board. There are, there are a bunch of technical reasons why the U.S. is different. It's a lot easier to call someone on the phone in Kenya and have them be willing to talk to you, frankly. Really? Um, much. I mean, our response rates globally are north of 60% for phone calls that we make. And in the U.S., you just simply cannot get those numbers. We can get, you know, in the 20% range, sometimes 30% range. But it's much, much harder to just get people on the phone. What's the incentive for those people in Kenya to get on the phone with you? The possibility of better goods and services targeting them in the, in the future? Yeah, I mean, we have found that a lot of this has to do with, you know, we, we talk about making the experience of going through one of our surveys as being a, being a delightful experience. You know, and I don't know about you, but I have yet to get a phone call in my home, you know, during dinner when I'm trying to get my kids to sit still <laughs> that I've experienced is delightful. Mm-hmm. But I just think we do a terrible job of acting respectful in these conversations and reminding ourselves that every interaction that has the company's name on it with a customer is an opportunity to either strengthen your relationship with that customer or make it worse. You know, and that's just the basics of how you treat your customers. And so our 300 plus research assistants around the world in 35 plus countries go through really, really rigorous training to how to handle that, you know, first 60 seconds of the phone call to make sure they understand who's calling, why they're calling, how it's going to be used. And then we keep the conversations really short, 15 minutes or less. So where I would like us to do more and we're working on this is closing that loop with that customer and very specifically getting back to them and saying, you told us these things and these are the things that we're doing. I think that's really a crucial element of good feedback work. Um, and again, we do it in some cases. It's been harder to implement across the board, but we hope mm-hmm. to do more. You recently launched a, a COVID-19 dashboard. What what kind of data are you collecting and, and what kind of insights are you hoping to gain from it? Yeah, um, I mean, obviously, like everyone, you know, we're trying to be as responsive as possible to COVID and you know, one of the things we saw is that in-person research essentially was impossible for a number of months. So we pivoted really quickly and started in early April to include COVID-specific questions across everything we're doing. And now we have specific initiatives whose data are all publicly available on our website for um, off-grid energy, for financial inclusion, uh, with a focus on microfinance, uh, and for agriculture. You know, across the board, we're trying to understand how people are doing. Uh, You know, one of the things that we noticed was there was a lot of data coming back. But as usual, the 3.5 billion people in the world who aren't responding to online surveys just were not represented. You know, Mm -hmm. so if you're in the government of Kenya or you're in Sierra Leone or you're, you know, Myanmar, you name it, uh, even Brazil to a certain extent, you're just not getting data that's representative of the entire population. So we want to understand things like how people are doing, what's happening to their incomes, how hard are they hit, what are they afraid of, is this about health, is this about jobs, is this about, you know, what's giving them hope. We did a piece of work related to COVID in Brazil recently for a company called May Facil, which is an investor of Flourish Ventures, and it's particularly focused on gig workers, short-term workers uh, in the gig economy. You know, and in a way, you know, 
talk about an illustration of, you know, impact will be different at different moments with different external circumstances. I mean, God willing, this is the only time we in our generation go through something like COVID. But the gig workers that we talked to, you know, one of the questions we asked was, if you lost your main source of income today, how long could you survive? And 51% of them said, I could survive for less than a week. And then, you know, just as troubling, you had before COVID, 62% of them were making more than $400 a month. That number is now 11%, right? I mean, so we're just trying to quantify the impact of this crisis that's having on people. You know, one of the things that's been a surprising finding is the inverse correlation of the impact of COVID and lockdowns with how seriously the lockdown has happened. Meaning countries that have taken it, you know, now Brazil is an exception, but we look at sub-Saharan African countries, for example, like Tanzania has been extremely light in terms of restrictions and the impacts that people are reporting so far have been low. Um, And so we are going to continue collecting this data for the next three to six months and see what the balance is of the economic impact of lockdown and the health impacts of lockdown. And obviously this is the balance that everyone is trying to strike everywhere in the world. Um, And the last thing that kind of has made us pause has been one question we asked is what's giving people hope? You know, we didn't really expect that the nothing category was going to be significant, but in a handful of countries, including Brazil, which has obviously had a terrible COVID response, but also Nigeria, surprisingly, something like 40% of respondents said nothing was giving them hope. That's disheartening. It is really disheartening. And it just made us wonder about, you know, social structures, um, you know, whether it's, religious institutions or other things that create social cohesion, you know, friends, family, et cetera, and what it would mean more broadly about what's going on. So we're going to you know, keep track of that. One more question for you. What's giving you hope right now? Hopefully it's not uh, nothing. No, not at all. Okay. Um, I think taking a step back, uh, it is a difficult time to be in the U.S. and watch how poorly we are collectively responding to COVID, it is also disheartening to see that any crisis like this exacerbates inequality and those who are already kind of not getting a fair shake um, kind of get the worst end of the bargain. I think what gives me hope is there's a level of understanding in this country in particular of kind of structural fundamental differences that need to be addressed and that we kind of need to get to the root of issues in a way that I don't think that that understanding existed before. And I think in a way, I think it's a relevant point to our sector because um, I, in our enthusiasm to build a big sector and an inclusive sector, I think at times we've lacked a little bit of humility um, and, you know, the notion of like, okay, now, you know, the impact investors are here to solve this problem. And I think folks have been working on those problems probably looked at us collectively or like, you know, we've been here for a while and it's kind of hard. And so, you know, my hope is that we're getting a deeper understanding of some of the structural barriers that are creating, you know, the challenges, whether it's in this country or in other countries. And that knowledge will allow us to think more broadly, to partner more, uh, and to think longer term about what it's going to take to make change. Because I think, you know, without really understanding what it is we're up against, we're never going to really crack it. And I do think that there's you know, real clear-eyedness with which we're seeing things. We just can't deny it now. And I hope that that's really going to change the conversation and change expectations. Um, and and with that, you know, and I, I'm, <laughs> I'm hopeful that this country will get its act together too one of these days um, because, you know, this is about our well-being, our collective well-being, our public health, how we take care of one another and what it means to be a citizen. 
And I do hope that, you know, we can emerge from this stronger, but uh, it's, it's been a trying time. That would definitely be a, a silver lining to, to all of this. Um, is there anything that I haven't asked that you'd like to mention before I let you go here? I mean, I think, look, what I do really think is that it's an exciting time. And I think that what's really interesting for me, I had spent 12 years at Acumen and now at 60 decibels, is the breadth of the sector and the creativity with which people are kind of coming up with new capital structures, people are creating new solutions, looking at new theses. I mean, there is a vibrancy of the activity of what's going on that I think is not captured in the numbers. You know, it's not about how many total dollars are being deployed, um, but it's about this sort of embedding itself more broadly into how capital is thought about and how it's deployed. I do think we have a long way to go still in terms of really kind of putting our, our practice where our words are, if you will. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I think there's no denying that we're in just a completely different, you know, if we started the conversation around, you know, just 20 years ago, companies and funds that were trying to integrate social change with the power of markets just didn't exist. We've come a really, really long way. And there's just sort of a, a healthiness of the ecosystem that I find really refreshing and exciting. Um, mm -hmm. And this is, you know, and I think that will just continue to accelerate as this gets to be more mainstream. Yeah, the great part of hosting this podcast is getting to talk to people like yourself who have been pushing the field forward over the last, you know, decade, two decades. And, and, uh, and I, I couldn't agree more. So thank you, Sasha, so much for, for taking the time to, to join me. Thank you, Alex. A real pleasure. Nice to get to talk to you. And uh, be well. Stay safe. Likewise. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Money and Meaning. I hope that you enjoyed the conversation with Sasha Dichter from 60 Decibels. As always, we'll publish a blog post on our website at socialcapitalmarkets.net, where you can find additional resources related to the conversation, such as a link to their COVID dashboard, their energy report that, that Sasha mentioned on why off-grid energy matters. You can subscribe to their their monthly newsletter, The Volume, and find out more information there. You can get in touch with me personally at, at moneyandmeaningpodcast at gmail.com or um, with SoCap in, in general at the social media handles at SoCap Markets. And we have a, a few good episodes in the pipeline, so stay tuned. The next one will be with Margaret Trilly, the CEO of, of the billion-dollar donor-advised fund in Impact Investor, Impact Assets. And then we'll have Casey Vanderstrick from, from MIT Solve to talk about their, their Solve Innovation Fund. So stay tuned and we'll be back in two weeks with a new episode.